All right. Good morning, everyone. Just before I start, I got some advice on how to use this properly last time. Is this good, Dylan, leaving it there? Is that fine? Excellent. Okay. Uh, just before we get into the word today, um, you may have heard on the news about the uh, little four-year-old girl who uh, has gone missing on a, on a camping trip and uh, it's just on some people's heart this morning. So um, just as I come to pray for us as we listen to the word this morning, I'd also like to lift her up. So let's do that now. Sorry, Keith. Uh, where was it? Sorry. I've there you go. All right. So let's pray for her. Lord, we just want to lift up this family to you now, and especially that, uh, that poor little girl who's gone missing and all her things going missing in the middle of the night. It just must be such a, an anxious and scary time for that family and especially for that little girl. And we know there are search parties out and there are more and more people going out to look for her. Lord, we just pray for a miracle in that situation. We pray that you can return her to her family, that she can get back safe, that she can be found uh, without injury. Um, she can be found soundly in good health, that she can be returned. Uh, and we just thank you for all of the people who are out there searching, that are out there looking for her, that you can direct them and lead their way to her. And we just pray that she comes back, Lord. That is such a a devastating tragedy, um, and we just we just pray that you will return her. And Lord, as we come to the word this morning, I just pray for us here this morning that you will open our hearts and open our eyes to what you have to say to us. We lift up all these things in your powerful name. Amen. All right. Um, just if you're wondering why Alex isn't here this morning. He's got a few weeks of annual leave, so uh, I'll be preaching for the next few weeks, which I'm looking forward to. We just finished our uh, sermon series on prayer, and uh, we've got another one starting soon, but Alex has left it with me, so you'll be seeing a little bit more of me over the next few weeks. So we had those two readings this morning. Um, and it might be a little bit funny to go from two readings. Usually you go from one, but I just thought they work so well together. That's what we'll be reading from. So a little while ago, I caught up with one of my long-term best friends. Uh, we've been friends for since we were in primary school and uh, best friends not long after that. And uh, we've journeyed through some really major life stuff together. He was um, he was part of my bridal party as well, so we've been very close for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've shared everything together. This friend had struggled with an addiction for over a decade. And at one point in this conversation, when we were catching up some time ago, he said that for the first time since this addiction started, he's truly happy with himself. He had known God his whole life, and despite cognitively knowing that, you know, grace is extended to him uh, and accepting that 
in his thoughts many, many times, and he was living out and doing some awesome stuff for God. He'd only just recently come to a place where he was genuinely happy with who he was, not defined by the shame and isolation of that addiction, but transformed and defined by the grace and love of Jesus. Jesus is in the business of transformation. Perhaps above all else, Jesus can't help but transform people, places, the way that we view the world and tradition in a way that gives a new meaning, a new weight and depth, and a new way of engaging in life-giving possibilities so that when we dig into this, we can't help but be drawn into some sort of transformation with and by Christ as well. Sometimes this is simply yet profoundly a transformation of our own perspectives, helping us to see what was already there all along. The Hebrews passage today speaks to the transformation of the way people are able to encounter God and how we come to be in right relationship with God. What is not mentioned explicitly in this passage uh, is that encounter and relationship is now for everyone. This is a huge transformation that Jesus brought about from the Old Testament, which is kind of a story about a chosen nation up against the world. Uh, But now Jesus has come and invited everyone into that picture. Jesus is about transformation. What is explicitly spoken to Uh, in this passage is the significant change in the way that this is mediated to us. In the Old Testament, we read that the process of coming into right relationship with God required priests as mediators to bring burnt offerings and animal sacrifices on behalf of people. Uh, For most people, this was quite an external thing. They weren't allowed to be involved in the most intimate part of the process, which was Uh, heading into the inner parts of the tabernacle where they could relate to God. Only the select few could go into that space of intimacy uh, with God, which was called the holy, and then going in further, the holy of holies. In this passage, Jesus totally changes that by fulfilling the demand of the sacrifice for blood. I think it's easy for us to forget that there is actually still a demand for blood because we don't really have to deal with that these days. These days that seems barbaric and archaic, but sacrificial blood, in a sense, is still required today, but it's of course fulfilled uh, by Jesus in the barbaric and violent way he did that on the cross. The climax uh, of barbarism and violence in the story of Jesus, brought on by people, is the same point at which Jesus is cleansing us people of the same stuff, the same sin that put him there. Jesus meets this demand once for all. His blood was spilt for everyone and not in the inner sanctum of a physical tabernacle, but out for everyone to see, mocked and punished, even in the midst of dying for the full weight of the sin that put him there. So, What was in the Old Testament uh, was this very private, very intimate process of sacrifice uh, has been hung out for all to see and Jesus in his sacrifice transforms the way 
uh, in not just the Jews, but also Gentiles, are able to relate to God forever. No longer do we need a priest or a pastor to mediate this relationship for us. No longer are there physical boundaries around the intimacy that we can have with God. And as proof of that, Alex has gone on leave for three weeks. Uh, But it does say Jesus has entered a greater and more perfect tabernacle, uh, the most holy place, even as he was on the cross. So where then is that tabernacle? The tabernacle of old is physical, uh, clearly locatable and distinct from the other buildings around it. So what is this new tabernacle that Jesus entered once for all by his own blood, as it says in verse 12? And where is this most perfect tabernacle not made with human hands, as it says in verse 11? In verse 13 of the Hebrews passage, it says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But this is only a process that can point towards something else. This is only an outward cleanness that by going through this process, we hope can point us uh, and to reflect the inner act of repentance that is happening in our hearts. Verse 14 says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? When Jesus enters the most holy place to cleanse us, not outwardly, but inwardly. This greater tabernacle that is not made by human hands, but created by God himself, it's talking about the heart of faith that he has placed inside each of us that is a part of God's creation and becomes a new creation in Christ when we are transformed by the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. Jesus is about transformation. Transformation makes us a new creation. But the goodness of God in our heart is not new. It says that Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here. Although admittedly, uh, there appears to be some confusion about this. Flicking through some different versions of this Bible verse, we read of good things that have come, that are already here, having come, now here, and to come. There seems to be, according to the different versions, some conjecture about whether these good things already were here, have just come about, or are yet to come about. I'll come back to that. The eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleansing our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may, so that we may serve the living God. There is a point to all this and there's a response required of us as well so that we may serve the living God. Not a God of death, not a God whose story ended on the cross, but one who conquered death so that we can be transformed in a new life, in a new creation with Christ. Yes, Jesus is about transformation. I think this particular uh, verse may be out of fashion these days, not just because it's in kind of old 
language that we don't really use anymore, but philosophically, it's not really what people are about. This verse makes it pretty clear that in any action, there are two consequences, a way of life and a way of death. In this day and age, what is more acceptable in everyday life is the idea that uh, you can do your thing and I can do my thing and we could be doing totally different things as long as we don't interfere with each other. Maybe I even think that what you're doing is objectively wrong, but because, you know, we kind of just have to respect everyone's choices, we don't call each other out on it. Now, I trust that you don't think that I'm saying we should call out everyone who does something different to us, but because of this heightened emphasis these days on uh, acceptance of what other people's doing and other people's choices, there are people out there who are making choices about the way of death without any accountability. Kind of on the other end of this uh, emphasis on acceptance is the other extreme where, especially in media and social media, people who call out absolutely everything that is not their own viewpoint. Uh, but these people often aren't so interested in actually holding people accountable as much as uh, cancelling people or disempowering people so that they can have their own voice heard and their own power gained. To me, this totally one-eyed way of calling people out uh, can be just as bad as never calling people out because if you don't do it from a place of relationship and respect, well, you're not actually leaving any space there for people to step in and be transformed. It becomes a big yelling match. Just a thought, in the, the biblical Greek, the word tima'o, and I'm sure I'm butchering how that's said, the word tima'o means honour. And the word for rebuke is epitima'o. Epi is a preposition that's pretty flexible, uh, prefix, sorry, and it basically means upon. So the word rebuke means to honour upon. Just an interesting thing, thinking about what it means to rebuke people and hold people accountable. So there are many different paths in life, yes, but ultimately, what possibilities are we bringing about through our actions? Are they possibilities that bring new life, a new creation, the possibility of transformation for ourselves and for others? Or are they possibilities that bring death? The Mark reading from today is the story of a teacher of the law who asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says, love God with everything you have and yourself and your neighbours with everything else. It's not exactly capturing it, but uh, sometimes saying it differently helps us to hear it afresh. The teacher of the law responds positively, affirming what Jesus has said, uh, saying that loving God and neighbour is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus sees that he answers wisely and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So if he's not far from the kingdom of God, then where is the kingdom of God? Well, just like the good things that are already here from the Hebrews passage, the jury is split. Uh, if you go to Matthew 10:7, uh, chapter 10, verse 7, different versions talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It says this, And as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of God has come 
is at hand, is close at hand, has come near, has drawn nigh, uh, no points for guessing what version that's from, is near and will soon be here. When I first sat down to write this sermon, I, I like to put some thoughts and some notes down on my page, and at the top I put stories of transformation or the kingdom of God. And then a couple of seconds later I looked at that and went, hang on, this isn't a story of transformation or the kingdom of God. This isn't one or the other. These two things are the same story. If there is no transformation, there is no kingdom of God. If there's no kingdom of God, the good things from the Hebrews reading cease to be a factor in human life. Earlier I said I would come back to when and where the good things are, uh, where they're located, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the kingdom of God seems equally as difficult to place. I'm going to tell you an old story. Uh, a parable, perhaps. I read it in a book by uh, a guy called Scott Peck, but he says he can't remember where he got it from. Needless to say, it's, it's an old story. It's called The Rabbi's Gift. There's a large monastery that's fallen on hard times. Decimated to the extent that, despite being large and flourishing in centuries past, it's now resigned to its decaying mother house, uh, one abbot, and four monks. In the woods surrounding the monastery, there was a hut that a rabbi from town occasionally stayed in. From years, and, from years of prayer and contemplation, the monks had become quite sensitive, so they always knew when the rabbi was staying there. Agonizing about the death of his order, the abbot wondered one day if the rabbi had any advice for him. So he set out to visit the hut. The rabbi welcomed him in, and the abbot asked his questions. The rabbi commiserated, saying, I know how it is. The spirit has gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. The two wept for a while, read the Torah, and reflected together. They embraced, and the abbot said, It's wonderful to meet you properly and to talk together after all these years, but... Are you sure there's nothing you have that could help me to save my dying order? The rabbi said, no, I have no advice. All I can say is the Messiah is one of you. The abbot went back and recounted this to the monks. In the following months, they pondered who it could be. Surely the abbot, he's been the leader of the order for over a generation, but then maybe Brother Thomas... Everyone knows he is a man of light. Surely not Brother John, he's often grumpy, but, but he is virtually always correct. Surely not Brother Philip, he's so passive, but then he does always seem to appear when you need him most. They all thought, surely not me, I'm an ordinary person. Contemplating this, the monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, on the off chance that they might be the Messiah, themselves included. People still visited the place because it was old and beautiful, to picnic on the lawn, and occasionally they'd come into the chapel to meditate. 
somehow the people began to notice an aura of respect radiating from the monks. They went home and told others about it. People began to go more frequently. Some younger people visited the monastery and asked if they could join. Within a few years, it became a thriving order once again, a vibrant centre of light. The kingdom of God manifested itself when the monks in this story started to treat each other with the respect that one of them may have been the Messiah, though I dare say that none of them actually were. But there was a point of transformation for them when they started to do things differently. The kingdom of God and the good things that are here are here when we make decisions that bring life instead of death. And maybe that's why there's confusion about exactly where the kingdom of God and these good things are located because they're dependent on us for them to appear. The teacher of the law from the Mark passage was not far from the kingdom of God because in his encounter with Jesus, something was clicking for him that was causing him to make the kind of life-giving decisions that would draw him into the kingdom of God and in turn cause it to come about and draw others into that too. He understood that the Old Testament rituals of sacrifice pointed to something greater inside of us, a greater cleansing and transformation that could only come from God, that came through Jesus, because Jesus is about transformation. We have a God who is sovereign, who has the power to give and to take away, to bless and to curse, to make new creation possible without lifting a finger, despite the best efforts of humanity to, albeit unwittingly, stuff it up. We also have a God that loves us so much and wanted us to have a life so full and free and abundant that he made us an integral part of the coming kingdom of God, even at the expense of his own son. So the challenge and responsibility for us is, are we bringing life? Are we bringing good things? Are we bringing the kingdom of God? Are we, like Jesus, about transformation? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you first and foremost and remind ourselves all the time of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. That you no longer demand more sacrifices from us because he has covered us once for all. That he's taken our sins upon himself and in doing so transformed our lives and transformed who we can be. Lord, we pray that as we live into this reality uh, and as we let ourselves be transformed by Jesus and bring about the kingdom of God, that you make us an integral part of bringing into this world. We just pray that we can make those decisions that bring life and invite others into the kingdom as well. Amen.